Amen. You may be seated. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. We are finishing out the chapter this morning, taking a look at Philip's ministry to the Ethiopian eunuch. Before we jump into the text, it's important that we always pause and and ask the Spirit to help us to illuminate the passage before us that we might understand and and believe what it is that God is trying to say. So if you would, just uh, let's just bow for a word of prayer and ask for the Father's help. Lord, as we come to this text here, looking at the Ethiopian eunuch, looking at Philip's ministry to him, Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts, that we would have the same compassion, the same desire, not just to reach to the ends of the earth, but to reach the one sitting right next to us. Father, so often we become so caught up in plans and schemes and organizations. We plot and we strategize, and all of these things we know, Lord, are necessary for taking your name to the ends of the earth. But, Father, as we look at Philip this morning, I just pray you'd open our eyes to see that for all of our organization, for all of our strategizing, Lord, help us to be faithful just to speak to the one sitting next to us as well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We find ourselves in Acts chapter 8. We have come to verse 26. And of course, in verse 26, uh, we, we see that Philip is being redirected to a different location. If I could introduce a word to describe this transition point, the word that I would use to describe it would be reassignment. Reassignment. Very oftentimes we'll have visitors and guests who come here to First Baptist Church who who come to visit, and as I greet them at the door, as I see them on their way out the door afterwards, uh, we get to visit and ask them, oh, what brings you to First Baptist today? How did you end up here? And uh, a lot of people come because they're visiting family. Others come because they've moved to town. And sometimes an individual will say, I was reassigned. I was working for a particular company, and the position I was working for at that particular company closed. There was a shuffling, a merger, you know, structural corporate realignment, this, that, and the other thing. And now I took a new position here with the same company here in Kamloops. Others will say, oh, I just took a new job because I hated my old job, and the new job was here in Kamloops. They have shifted locations. They have been reassigned. And in a sense, that's exactly what is happening here with Philip. Now... If you're told to go somewhere else, undoubtedly you might wonder why. Is it because I'm not doing a good job in an important position and perhaps corporate is assigning me to a less significant position, a less significant role? I mean, these are the types of questions that I think any of us in a a working environment, we ponder these things. And surely, if you're Philip, That has to be on your mind as well. If you'll recall, at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, Philip is preaching in Samaria, and he is having tremendous success. Signs and wonders are being done. The whole group, the whole city is coming, and with one accord is hearing everything that he's having to say, and he's preaching, and people are getting saved. The apostles come down. They see what's going on. They put their stamp of approval on it. Everything is going fantastic, and they have a ministry that works its way all the way through Samaria, such that the apostles even go through town after town and all of this was at Philip's initiation. He is preaching to the multitudes. He is preaching to the masses. And then in the very next 
passage, we leave Samaria behind, and the scripture says that an angel of the Lord says to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. What's down there? Nothing. (laughs) It's kind of a desert. In fact, the text is explicit. Um, It says a little bit further on uh, in that same verse, this is a desert place. The the word wants you to know that there's nothing there. It's just a a road. It's a freeway. It's it's basically just like going down Highway 1 out into the middle of nowhere. And this is where the Lord tells him to go. A couple of weeks ago, we were at a deacon's meeting, and we were discussing job performance. And uh, in any professional who works in any kind, of a, any kind of a career, how do you measure how well you're doing? You know, if you're an automobile worker, you measure how well you're doing by how fast you turn out a certain part or how fast you turn out a certain automobile. If you're working as a, a journalist for a newspaper, you know, your, your editor has certain expectations on you. How quickly can you research and write the story? How fast can you pump out those articles, generate that content? If you're into sales, well, that's obvious. The more you're selling, the better you're doing. And there are all these kinds of metrics that uh, you can use to determine your relative success. In pastoral ministry, we do it too. We do it too. It's very difficult in terms of the fruit of the Spirit to measure exactly within the congregation how much a person is growing in love or how well a person is growing in patience. And so you can't quite empirically measure fruit of the Spirit. And so we count heads. How many people are coming in the door? How many people are moving through the baptistry? We do it too. And I have no doubt that Philip was doing it. Look at this. Revival is breaking out. The thousands upon thousands are coming to faith in Christ. And then Jesus says, an angel of the Lord says, go to the desert. (laughs) Not exactly the attaboy that you were hoping for. Not exactly the congratulations that you had every right to expect was coming your way. Philip makes his way out into the desert. Verse 27, he rose and he went. There's nothing from Philip. Lord, why? You know, I've got things to do here. I'm being successful here. Lord says, go to the desert. Philip gets up and he goes. There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Now, down by Gaza, he makes his way, and he's on the desert road. It's uh, the road that connects Jerusalem back over to the African continent. And obviously, this man is traveling. He's gone to Jerusalem for one of the festivals. We're not sure which. And he has obviously gone to worship, so he has a measure of belief. He's obviously uh, involved in the, in the Judaistic religion. And he is returning from the festivals, from the different events that have been happening, happening undoubtedly in Jerusalem. He is making his way back to Ethiopia. He is a eunuch. 
And that is because he works closely hand in hand with the queen of Ethiopia. Uh, the scriptures refer to her as Candace. That I found out recently is not an official name. That, that is not her formal given name. That is a, an official title. She is the queen mother. And in my research, I didn't realize this until I dug into it a bit this last week. In my research, found out that the king takes on a more sort of sovereign role. He's more of a figurehead, but a lot of the administration of the kingdom actually is run through the queen mother's office, so to speak, which means that this individual, this Ethiopian eunuch who is described within the text as being in charge of all the queen mother's treasure might be something like the minister of the exchequer, might be something like the minister of the treasury. Uh, This is a very significant, a very important individual within the government. Philip is told to go to a desert place And while we are told that this man is a man of prominence and significance, I think what we can conclude for our first point this morning is that while the Lord has a heart for the nations, he clearly has a heart for the one. Philip is told to leave a very thriving ministry and to go basically out into the middle of nowhere where there is a man who is seeking for the Lord. Yes, we're told he is wealthy. We are told that he is a man of significance. We are told that he is a man of prominence, that he has a very significant position within the Ethiopian government. But those things are quickly surpassed by the description of this man and what it is that he's into. Look with me. It says, The Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this, chari- uh, join this chariot. Don't think of the Ben-Hur-style chariots. Don't think of the chariots where you're kind of riding and it's got two wheels and you're throwing spears at other guys and gladiators and other chariots. Think of more stretch limo kind of chariot, okay? This would have been a four-wheeled operation. He's riding in it. He obviously has an entourage of individuals who are attending to his needs. Somebody's driving it. And it's not also, throw out of your mind this idea that they're just ripping down the freeway doing 100 kilometers an hour. They're going to be just trotting along. Philip doesn't somehow take on superhuman strength and runs you know, at breakneck speed alongside this chariot. These guys are walking along on the, right, on the road, and Philip is told by the Spirit, go up and join this chariot. And he does. So Philip ran over to him, and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. This man is, as he is making his way back to Ethiopia, studying the scriptures. And on the Spirit's direction, Philip runs over to him, and he hears him reading the prophet, reading out loud the prophet Isaiah. And he asks him the question, do you understand what you are reading? Now, the exact text comes from Isaiah 53. If you jump down to verse 32, this is the passage that the Ethiopian eunuch was focusing on. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. This is the passage that he is reading. Philip hears him reading that. And he says to him, do you understand what this passage is talking about? Do you get it? And the Ethiopian eunuch, the man of prominence, the man of significance, the man who is in charge of the wealth and the treasure of Ethiopia, he poses the question right back to Philip. He says, how can I? (laughs) How could I understand it unless someone explains this to me? 
Now, that ought to tell you a little something about this man. Forget the position. Forget the status. Forget the fact that he works closely with the queen mother, Candace. Forget all of those things. Ladies, you're driving. Your husband is taking you somewhere on a road trip. After a while, you begin to wonder. You've seen the same street sign three times over. You're kind of thinking something is looking just a little too familiar. And you say to your husband, are you lost? No, is the answer. I'm not lost. Do you know where you're going? I know what I'm doing. Thank you very much. Okay? This man, do you know what you're reading? I've got an idea. Do you? I mean, how, how am I supposed to know what I'm reading unless somebody explains it to me? It's a response of humility. All the men are looking at me. You should say something about the women now. The women would use GPS. And the GPS would say, turn right at a place where there was clearly no right turn and they drive off a cliff. <laughs> Equal opportunity offense, okay? I, the men don't know where they're going. The women are following directions too closely. Now we can focus back on the text. Okay? Sorry, men, didn't mean to rub you the wrong way. Okay, I'm back to the text. This man is a man of humility, unlike so many of us here this morning. How could I possibly understand this unless someone explains it to me? And so he invites Philip to come up and sit with him. It refers to the passage, and this is the question that the eunuch has, which he poses to Philip, verse 34. About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus Christ. In our day and age, we have so much discussion and so much debate. The cliched expression is bandied about. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I really appreciated Ben Eady's comment a moment ago. We absolutely do. We want to meet the needs of people, the physical needs that they have, whether they need food or shelter or clothing. We do want to care for everyone, the face of the earth, over the, all the face of the earth, because the God that we worship, the God that we serve, is a gracious, gracious and merciful God. These things are absolutely true. But at the end of the day, food, shelter, clothing, the basic necessities of life, though they are necessary, will not suffice to meeting our deepest need. Here is a man who is searching. Here is a man who does not want for food, who does not want for clothing. Here is a wealthy man in a, group, in a great position, a government job, probably comes with a great pension. He is not down and out on life, and yet this man journeys to Jerusalem. He journeys to go worship. He is looking for God because having everything in life, he is still not satisfied. Oftentimes, when we start to consider evangelism, as we start to think about the neighbor next door or the co-worker at work who does not know Christ, the discussion that we get into because we have been so heavily in 
influenced by things such as the seeker-sensitive movement and relativism, we start to unpack the gospel from the perspective of its benefits. Here's what you need to know. If you become a Christian, you will be happy. If you become a Christian, all your financial problems will get sorted out. In fact, now it's even gone to the point where if you become a Christian, there are actual biblical diets in the Bible that will make you shredded and look like a million bucks. Daniel diet. He just ate vegetables. We can do that for you. We focus on benefits. We call them biblical benefits. And at the end of the day, we focus so much in on these benefits that we forget to mention the benefactor. It is not so much at all about what Jesus brings to you. It's Jesus. Who is this passage talking about? Is the guy writing the passage, the prophet Isaiah, is he talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? Philip doesn't say, do you want to go to heaven? You know what? I've had evangelism training. I've done way of the master. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever told a lie? He does not approach it that way. He starts with this passage. And here's what I want us to all take away from the text this morning. Wherever anyone is, whatever status or position they have in life, they are hurting. They can point to any number of symptoms. I am sad because my mom passed away. I am stressed because I'm fearful I'm going to lose my job. But at the end of the day, all of those things are symptoms of a broken world that point to a solution which is only found in Jesus. He doesn't start off with way of the master or some sort of faith-outlined evangelism track. This guy is looking at a particular scripture verse. He is clearly hungry to know the Lord, and he poses the question in humility, who's this talking about? And Philip, starting with this passage, begins to explain Jesus. Jesus, like a sheep, was led to the slaughter. Number one, Jesus died on a cross. This is what Philip undoubtedly is telling the Ethiopian eunuch. And all too often we focus in on the horror and the pain and the suffering of the cross. But at the end of the day, listen to me, First Baptist Church, the physical pain of the crucifixion, as horrific and as violent as that was, that is not, it was not then and it is not today, the ultimate issue. Yes, Jesus suffered on a cross. And nominal Christians the world over see this incredible suffering on the cross and they think to themselves, this was a good guy who didn't deserve to die and he died a horrific death and now we're going to all feel bad for him and we're going to get together and we're going to sing some songs and we're going to reflect on the fact that this shouldn't have happened and the way it happened was horrific, horrific, horrible. Jesus' physical suffering was not the ultimate issue. He cried from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The ultimate issue was that the Father was turning his face away from the Son. And why did he do that? Because Jesus had taken upon himself the sin of the world. The ultimate issue is not that what he was going through physically was bad, though it was, 
The ultimate issue is that he was experiencing separation from the Father because the Scripture says that God the Father is too holy to look on sin, and in Christ, he took on the sins of all of us, you and me, every person in this room, to bear the penalty, to bear the wrath of God. When he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is crying out because for the first time, the Son has broken fellowship with the Father. The fellowship that we broke. The second thing he probably would have said to him, as this text goes forward, he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied to him. Who could describe his generation? The people in this day and age are very religious. The temple, which this Ethiopian eunuch has undoubtedly just returned from, is very ornate. It's uh, sort of like a museum of sorts. It's got this wonderful trappings and wonderful decor, and the priests that are there are sort of guarding it quite quite scrupulously. They're, I mean, you imagine fellows dressed up in tuxedos with white gloves and velvet ropes and, no, you can't come back here. No, you can't touch that. No, you can't go here. You are, after all, a Gentile. You are, after all, a eunuch, an Ethiopian eunuch. You're not allowed into this court. You can't come here. And at the end of the day, if you're this fellow, surely you're thinking, well, what is the point of all of this? These guys who are charged with guarding this temple would have observed at some time in the distant past a direct correlation, a direct connection. One day up on the hill outside the city, there's a bit of a a skirmish going on. The Romans are executing a criminal, that Jesus of Nazareth fellow. And it got supernaturally dark outside. So dark that at the brightest part of the day, at high noon, they're lighting candles in the temple to see where they're going. And towards the end of it, as they're going about their ordinary business on that Sabbath Friday, they would have heard a loud cry off in the distance. In my house over in Happy Vale, I can hear the soccer games and the softball slow pitch games at Mack Park. And you can hear at night the lights come on and people clapping and cheering. And you can hear every once in a while the crack of the bat. And everybody, there's a roar that goes up. And undoubtedly, these priests here would have heard off in the distance a loud cry. Maybe some jeering and some cheering from the crowd. And in that moment, when Christ said it is finished and yielded up his spirit. These guardians of the temple, these white-gloved, tuxedo-dressed, officious, scrupulous stewards would have noticed with a loud crack the veil separating the Holy of Holies being torn in two. And so Philip would have been describing to this Ethiopian eunuch, maybe you didn't see it when you were there, but not long ago, the man about whom this text speaks died on a cross so that the temple which separates not only you, but all of those officious religious priests from the presence of God 
was ripped in half. So now, because of Jesus, the one of whom this text speaks, you can have an immediate relationship with God. And then this last line. His life is taken away from the earth. But it's not the end of the story. Because on Sunday morning, he would have told the Ethiopian eunuch, there's an empty tomb. Witnesses come, they observe that there is no body, but that there are bedclothes, the clothes in which he was wrapped, his burial garments. And of course, the theory was put forward, well, his disciples came by night and stole his body away. The disciples came by night and took his body, which was stiffened by rigor mortis and was obviously decomposing and had the wherewithal to take his clothes off of him and fold them neatly and leave them there. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Others would suggest, no, 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 he didn't actually die. He's alive. He almost died on the cross. He just sort of swooned and passed out, and they thought he was dead. Again, not really appreciating the seriousness or the professionalism with which Roman executioners would have gone about their task. There was no mistaking it. They stuck a spear in his side. He was dead. And ultimately, the testimony of the church from that first Sunday following, in which Jesus met them in the upper room, the testimony of the church is that on Sundays we gather to worship because it was on a Sunday that we know, we are convinced, and we have seen the truth that Jesus Christ came out of the tomb and he conquered the grave. The Ethiopian eunuch asks Philip, who's this talking about? It's talking about Jesus. Here's who he is. Here's what he did. And it's good news for you. And it's good news for me. Because if we would hope in what Christ did for us on the cross, we can be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to the Father in heaven above. Well, the Ethiopian, he's just got all these questions. Know what he asks next? Verse 36, As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? (laughs) I tell you, man, Here you have a perplexed man asking questions. And over here you have a prepared man ready to explain the gospel. And having explained the gospel, this perplexed man becomes a pardoned man. And man, having heard that, he's going public, man. Public with baptism. So often Christians say, I'm not ready. I I need to get more holy. I need to get my life straightened out. I need to get things squared away. I'm not ready to be baptized. Almost as though baptism is the culmination of the Christian life, not resurrection. Almost as though glorification is the thing that must precede our commitment to Christ before we can commit to him. If that's your view of baptism, you've missed it. Philip's explanation to the Ethiopian eunuch is that Christ's gift of salvation is precisely that. It's a gift. 
And though this text doesn't touch on it, other passages do. The faith which is necessary to salvation is a gift, and the repentance which follows is a gift. All of it, start to finish, is a gift from Christ. Your response is to identify with him in baptism. No, of course you're not perfectly holy. I'll let you know a little secret. Well guarded. You have to just keep this between you and me. I'm not perfect either. I was hoping a little more laughter. (laughs) I can tell you already may have suspected. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. So if you're thinking you need to be perfect to be baptized, you're wrong. The Ethiopian eunuch hears the gospel. He believes in Jesus. They are still in the same car ride. There's no, why don't you go home and think on this for a couple weeks, come back, schedule an office visit with the pastor and discuss it with him later on down the road. None of that. They're still in the chariot, cruising along the road. There's a puddle. What's the holdup? That's how I want to finish this morning with you. This passage is clearly about sharing our faith. It's a passage about Philip sharing his faith. And his faith was in Jesus. Not in the benefits that Jesus brings, not in his own personal sanctification and holiness, not in the success of ministry he'd been having before. His confidence was in Christ, and he sought to instill that same confidence in the Ethiopian eunuch. Not in benefits, not in in all these other things that we can focus on, but in Christ. And having understood that it was in Christ, his question was, why can't I go ahead and be baptized now, identifying with Christ? That's my question to you. If you are here today, and you have trusted in Jesus, I fear for some of you that somewhere along the line you were told you had to become holy or you had to at least clean yourself up a little bit better than you are before you would be considered an acceptable candidate for baptism. And I want you to know that the thing that is necessary for baptism is a commitment to Jesus Christ, faith only in what he has done on the cross and obedience to proclaim that relationship to the world through baptism. The Ethiopian eunuch, he sees the water. He's ready to commit his life to Christ. And for him, that act of commitment, that is baptism. And so as we close this morning, First Baptist Church, if you are here and you have trusted in Jesus, if you have committed to walking a life of faith, commit to baptism. Let's pray. Father, we just say thank you for your word. We say thank you, Father, for the ministry of Philip. We say thank you, Lord, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we recognize that we are imperfect, but it is because of your righteousness that we stand before the Father above. Lord, help us to signify to the world that we belong to you, that we have hoped in you. 
And help us to do that, we pray, Lord, not by earning our salvation, not by trying to clean ourselves up, but by baptism showing that we have died, we have come to the end of ourselves, and it is you and you alone who raises us up. We pray, God, for any who are here today who have not understood that, that you would open their eyes to see their need to follow you in faith and obedience. In all these things, Lord, we pray that you would help First Baptist Church to be faithful in our witness and our testimony to the world around us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.